welcome to this episode of Manchester Medical Journal's podcast series. MMJ is an open access peer review journal started in 2014 by medical students at the University of Manchester. In our podcast series, we welcome a range of engaging speakers to discuss topical medical themes and current issues in the field. I'm your host, Eleanor, a final year medical student at the University of Manchester. In today's episode, we discuss the ins and outs of the Academic Foundation Programme. Here to inform us more about life as an AFP doctor and tips for applying, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Ashley Stokes. Ashley is an Academic Foundation Programme Year One at East Lancashire Trust. He studied medicine and a Master's of Research in Cardiovascular Health and Disease at the University of Manchester. His research interests include intervention cardiology and intensive medicine. He was also a previous member of the MMJ committee. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Good, good to be back. So uh, I guess to start with, um, I just wanted to ask, what made you want to do the AFP in the first place? Um, so me personally, I, I've always just liked the idea of research and academia. And as broad as, and as boring as that kind of sounds, it's, it's really what I wanted to go into medicine for in the first place was just the research opportunities um it's when you ask a load of academic foundation programs or just anyone in general about research they'll give you completely different answers and often it'll just be oh it just feels right it's just what i want to do and they can't really think of doing anything else in their life um and then there's a lot of people as well who want career benefits of it but me personally it was I, act, I actively try and do projects on the side that I enjoy. I read up papers in my spare time, irrelevant to if they're useful to me or not for my medical practice. And I just felt like the AFP was a, a way of me doing more of that and potentially even putting it to use. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was why I really wanted to do it. Maybe if it's possible, I could use it as a stepping stone to do even more projects, potentially even PhDs. Um, that that was my personal reasons for it. Okay, I guess it's useful um, if you have a genuine interest in reading papers that uh, instead of having to do it for things like the AFP, where it's a bit of an artificial um, tick box exercise, I suppose. And um, how have you found life as an AFP doctor so far? Um, I'll be honest that the role of an AFP doctor isn't really that different at all from a regular foundation doctor no one can tell that you're an AFP um, apart from what four or five people in the entire trust no one will really know or really care if you're an AFP or not it's not that big a difference you're just the doctor you do your work and then depends on the structure of the actual um, program but once every two weeks you'll spend some time helping out with an audit or you might be uh, doing some leadership exercises, or you might be teaching some medical students, these types of things, just on the side, you'll be doing those, and you'll have dedicated time to do so. Um, that, that's really it. It facilitates you doing your extracurricular activities that you would otherwise want to do anyway, um, as part of generalized career progression. But um, it's, it's very, you, you'd be surprised how little it changes your actual foundation foundation year. Okay, and you've mentioned about the structure of your placement and how 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 does that work generally? Um, what are the other ways that 
doctors can have an AFP uh, experience? So again, it varies quite dramatically based on where you apply and also based on your rotor team's availability, given at least for, for this year, coronavirus has made it a little bit more difficult. However, the trust that I'm in, the generalized structure is that you'll have a day per two weeks or half a day a week, roughly, of dedicated academic time. And it's similar to how people have teaching, dedicated teaching time, for example. It's protected. So you, you do, you, you know, your generalized ward work, everything like that. And it just stops. You hand over to someone else and then you have to do whatever academic research it is that you're doing. It would be, in my case, what every two weeks I'd have a day. However, a lot of trusts also have it where they have a dedicated like research block. And it's really, it's quite structured by you yourself, the AFP. You have to initiate, well, who am I going to be trying to teach? What area do I want to research? I'm going to contact these people on audits, uh, that type of stuff. And even if you're the research AFP and you're actively involved in the research team for the hospital, you still have to initiate doing those audits. You may get added on to an audit or two, but these things are generally speaking done quite late and it's only really one or two audits. This is the exact same number of audits that a lot of motivated foundation doctors will do. It'll be well within your um, reach time-wise to be doing much more than just one or two audits. You can be doing entire research projects almost independently with the amount of time that you have and with the facilities that you'll have, given that your supervisor will be a high up ranking researcher or, or lead in the hospital or educator in a university. So you'll have the connections given to you on a plate and it's up to you to use them basically. Obviously, you've mentioned of, about the differences between different trusts and how they structure their AFP courses. How, how did you decide where to apply to and did the structure of the courses play any role in, in your decision? Oddly, not particularly. I was applying to places based on um, experience in the area and... Um, I'll be honest, just reputation of the areas that I was applying to and availability living wise costs in terms. So, so, so my choice of areas wasn't down to an amazing, oh, yes, I know that Newcastle, they're doing these amazing research projects. As much as I'd like to say it was that, me personally, it was I was able to get hold of Manchester because I know a place I want to live in Manchester and I know who I want to live with in Manchester, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to apply to live in the Northwest. That was that was really the the default thing that came to mind. Uh, all the other benefits that I'd have, i.e., I know some of the people in Manchester University that I did research previously with. I had put a project ongoing in the MRI, for example. Um, all all of these factors are like add-ons to it. But deciding between trusts for the academic foundation program is as subjective as it is for the foundation program. You, you don't really properly know what the district is like. You don't really know what the trust is like either. It's almost entirely word of mouth. Um, there's a lot more research you can do in terms of um, the people who were there before um, and just further outlines to it. 
but even then it's it's not really as much information as you'd like i would recommend anyone who is who has got a place for example or is very likely to get a place in a certain district to get hold of the afps in that area ask the supervisors for that district or for that trust hey, can you put me in contact with some of the afps that are there cuz that'll be leaps and bounds more information about what you'll be doing day to day than any of the breakdowns that they'll give you on a piece of paper. Um, so, so yeah, no, it is quite subjective in the end. You'd be surprised. When did you start thinking about the AFP um, during your medical school career? And when did you start preparing for the application itself? Um, I was thinking of it basically since I heard of it existing. I think I was a third year medical student when I came across my first academic foundation doctor and discovered it was actually a thing that people did at a fairly low level, to be quite honest, as a foundation doctor actually doing research is quite impressive. Um, but from from that point onwards, I was like, oh, wow, another avenue I could also do research-wise? I'll, I'll definitely have a stab at that. How, how do I apply? Um, so it was as early as I could get hold of it. That was when I was um, looking to go into it. In terms of preparation, um, I can't emphasize how important early preparation is. Your entire CV basically needs to be geared up to applying if you're serious about getting a place. Um, it's competitive enough getting your first choice in difficult areas, i.e. London, Brighton, whatever it is that you're applying to for the foundation program. For the AFP, it's obviously a step above that. And you've got the whole process of um, your like publications matter a lot more, presentations, audits, abstracts, everything. All of that stuff starts to count. And on top of that, you'll have an interview. And the interviews are nothing to be, uh, nothing to dissuade people from applying but they're not exactly easy. And I'd say that considering they have a decent weighting, interviews are to be prepared for uh, a good month in advance, at least, at minimum, because you have no idea what will come up for some of them. So so, so in short, as early as possible, uh, your, your CV needs to gear, be geared up for it uh, in the years leading up to the application. And you need to be preparing for the interviews um, you know, months in advance, because the average person just doesn't know any statistics. There is no hands-on learning statistics in med-, med school. No one really cares or takes home what a risk ratio is. N- none of us, that, that doesn't really cross our minds in the same sense. But in an interview, it's weighted the exact same as your actual ability to treat patients. Yes, we do know, obviously, that the AFP is quite a highly competitive process. And um, you've mentioned how in interviews, often statistics is quite a strongly featured component. Uh, Would you give any other tips about interviews generally, considering how important they are? Um, I think a lot of people overthink interview preparation. Um, You can treat it basically like an OSCE at some point. You'll have your CV and you should gear up your CV and you should know it back to back and have a default area to talk about. For example, they want you to give an experience that showed management or leadership or teaching 
or obviously research skills. And you just have to have a prepared idea of this hits loads of buzzwords. This is definitely good research or education. And this is how I'll apply it in the AFP. And you just need to follow a very kind of bullet point, dumbed down structure that shows that you you intend on actually doing something with the time that we're going to give you. When I was doing the um, interviewing in the, the mock interviews for the MMR SOC, for example, just being on the opposite side of it really gives you a good eye for what people actually act like when they're interviewed, especially in CV areas and especially in um, statistical areas. People tend to just muffle their words. They hesitate a lot more. They they aren't self-convinced in the sense that they are for anything medically speaking. They've, they've not revised their CV. They've not revised statistics in the same sense that they've revised medicine. So they don't have that self-confidence to just say this and then leave it there on a plate in front of me. So obviously, um, you had a chosen area of interest already that you'd kind of identified. Do you think it's a disadvantage for people who perhaps haven't decided on what specialty they'd like to go into when they're applying for the AFP? This, uh, this is a, in my experience, this is a bit of a sticky topic, actually. Um, on one side, it's good to be honest about how little and how difficult it is to make a decision about your future career. On the flip side, it does come across as um, just simpler to respond uh, as if you've given thought and that you've definitely decided this is the career path that I'm going to go down and give them none of the uncertainty that's in the back of your head that really does exist. Um, so, so you've kind of got to choose between the two of kind of being genuine and not giving the full story. But the flip side is the reality is that most people do that anyway. Everyone that thinks that I definitely want to go into cardiology in fifth year, a lot of them change their mind in two, three years. The, the whole decision-making process of specialization is so difficult because you don't have the experience of the specialty before you make the actual decision. So every time you try something, for all you know, you're going to completely hate it. And you're kind of guessing to a degree about your actual experience. The only proper understanding that you have is the area and the kind of people that you've come across in that specialty. You have no idea how you yourself are going to experience that specialty. So, so in that regard, the choice of specialization is a murky one anyway. However, when it comes to giving career plans, I think you, you treat it as if you do all, you treat it as if you were to give a diagnosis for a patient. You have a top diagnosis out of a series of differentials and you treat and you cover all of your bases. And that's how you just have to follow a certain path because if you don't make a choice, you won't go anywhere. That's an interesting parallel to draw on, I suppose, the the idea that picking a specialty is like choosing a set of differentials to uh, of which is your highest. Um, going back to kind of the beginning of your journey, did you find any resources particularly helpful uh, when you were researching about the AFP? 
Um, there was a couple of resources that, that are worth reading, at least in my experience, to make sure you're fairly clued up about what you're applying for in the first place. And the obvious one is the UK Foundation Programme's Guide to the AFP. Um, I believe it's on their website. Um, it's as part of the Guide for the Foundation Programme. There's an AFP section itself. And also on their website as well is the rough guide to the AFP, just for cursory reading. I would definitely have a look through that. Um, at least skim read most of it because you, you want to know what you're signing up for. And there may be kind of caveats in there that might not really sell it for you. And you might find out that you don't want to apply for this. So, so know what you're signing up for. Read, read the Academic Foundation Program Rough Guide on the UK Foundation Program website uh, for definite. That that is your first port of call um, for information about this. Um, other resources I used, particularly for revising, at least for statistics, was the Geeky Medics Statistics for Medics page. Um, that ended up being a lot more useful than I thought it would be, to be quite honest. I, I went through that and that covered basically everything apart from two that I was asked. Um, it was surprisingly informative and decently brief. But the final one that I would also recommend to people, because you'll have to Pico stuff as well, is a website called The Bottom Line. So The Bottom Line is, it's kind of a blog website where a series of intensive care, internal medicine and emergency physicians do reviews and blogs of upcoming research for like really big studies, the recovery trial, for example, um, sepsis trials, REMAP-CAP trial, all of the trials that have cool catchy names to them because they're that big and important, they get reviewed here and they get reviewed in a PICO style. So what, what you get is basically a mark scheme where you read a paper, because you can get access to the papers naturally. You can PICO it yourself and look for strengths and weaknesses, and then you can look to see what the experts would find if they were to take a look at it themselves. So you have model answers for loads of um, practices, practice, and you've got tons of papers to go through that they've reviewed that you can keep practicing with. So this is the ultimate, like, apply and get experience for picoing stuff well uh, websites I, I would say um, so yeah the bottom line .org .uk, uh, is really useful for revising and also just catching up on um, recent uh, papers and the reviews of it uh, reading them yourself is quite difficult and having at least a rough guide of what is the weakness and the strength clues you up to what you should look for in the papers in the first place. How did you approach um, the white space questions? White space questions are difficult. Um, again, for the same reasons as interviews, you need to give quite concise information on a breadth of skills that shows initiative that shows that you actually want to do the AFP in the first place. And people, most people that are applying can fill the entire word count two or three times over if they really want to. And 
the real difficulty is cutting down what is the best, what is the most important, what is worth them even reading in the first place. So I decided basically get as many people to look at it and get as many people to think this doesn't seem that useful. And then if they didn't think it was very useful, I just cut it out. I've got plenty of examples of useful things that I've done in the past. I've had a placement in this area. I did an audit involved in these people, et cetera, et cetera. I did this project that got me these um, skills. And if someone doesn't think that that specific skill in that area is useful to the AFP, I'm not going to mention it. I need to cut down my word count anyway. The other benefit uh, of getting loads of people to check it as well is just grammar, phrasing, just the basics. You just really need to have something that is succinct, readable, memorable, and that they won't get bored of when, when they read it. It's, it's really getting the basics done simply and well. And then you can actually focus on all of the nitty gritties of which of these skills can I actually bother fitting in in the first place. Um, if I had to give a structure, it would be what is the skill or what is it that you did? What are the key important skills that are transferable to the AFP? And how will you further these skills and apply them in the AFP? This type of picture, you need to have a kind of chronology of your your skill set of your CV because it shows it shows the skills in the first place that you need to give evidence of and it shows that it actually matters that you have those skills because you need to apply them in this area and you need to show the third thing which is development you need to then develop this further you need to show me why it's the AFP that you're choosing as opposed to the foundation program because you can develop your people skills you can do an audit in the foundation program this th these things can be happily done however the academic program is dedicated time that we pay you for you need to develop these skills and they need to be useful um that that's how i'd consider it you're, you're trying to justify me spending money on you <laughs> such that these skills will be developed and useful that that's how I, that's how i put it and there's a couple of kind of buzzword areas that people do like to see initiative in and those are the three areas leadership and management education and research just choose one of those that you have a great example for i.e you led this group you did this research project choose a big useful definitely needed skill i.e communication between loads of people money management in this area um public speaking um and just applying for grants all of that stuff big definite that you will need to do at some point in your life if you're going to become an academic and then how you're going to develop that further. It's worth mentioning um, as you rightly said that uh, there are three areas because um, we've not mentioned that before um, there are three areas that you can choose when you're applying for the AFP and that was as you said the research leadership and management um, and education. So at the time of recording um, interviews are ongoing at the moment and um, what were your experiences like of your interview? So I had interviews in Leicester and I also had obviously the Northwest interviews. The experiences were quite different in fact, they were very very different. Um, the Northwest is a bit more notorious for focusing less so on the medical statistics aspect of it 
and more so on your CV and more so on the medical station. However, that's not to underestimate, as I always hammer on the actual medical statistics side of it. For example, when I went to Leicester, that station was particularly difficult. And I remember there was a handful of us, six or seven of us, they, we went through that statistics station and one of us was happy with the results. All of us felt like we had basically failed that station. And that that's despite all of us, again, having done research, um, a couple of us had come across the paper we were actually asked to like review beforehand. Despite that, we still felt we had, we completely failed the station. Um, it's and it's not even technical difficult details. It's just dumb things. They'll just ask you a simple deep simple question of what is a risk ratio, what is a hazard ratio, and you'll not know or you won't know how to word it, and you'll freeze. And then after that, you're, you've got the jitters, um, you can't catch your words, you, your entire flow just kind of lapses and it's time lost. And if you miss a couple of questions at the end as well, that can be marks lost. And then you just feel like you've completely failed the station. And that was actually the experience that I had in Leicester was that I just didn't know the answer to one of the questions. I completely lost my flow despite feeling fairly confident beforehand about the statistics station, which is normally my strong suit. And yeah, no, I didn't really do incredibly well at it, I'll be quite honest. Um, in the Northwest, I had a bit better of an experience. The questions difficulty-wise were a bit better. Um, however, it was uh, harder to fully sell, at least in terms of my experience with interviews, my CV. One of the key things they look for is enthusiasm. And um, I, I can't stress enough how much your responses being enthusiastic, or at least feeling enthusiastic matters. You need to have your composure with regards to the interviews. And if that means you preparing answers to questions in advance to keep yourself calm, then it'll benefit you a lot. Uh, me personally, there are some people that we can't really rigidly fit into this is exactly how I'm going to answer this question verbatim. Um, however, the minimum amount of prep I would still recommend is having a ballpark area to go. For example, if they ask you an example of leadership and you have no idea, then if you skip that question, the take-home message from them is that you've not led anything. How am I going to give you a place for a potential leadership and management role? And you've not, you've got zero experience in the area. So, so it makes them very difficult. So the areas that you might hesitate in uh, are big, big examples of leadership, research, management. Um, other big areas that I hesitated in as well is the weakness. What, what is your weakness? question um which i i just it's it's they know and everyone knows that it's a bit of a bs question it's just it's just it is that's all it is the only reason it's asked is because they want to know how you respond to a bs question because it there's just certain lingo there's a certain demeanor and there's a degree of enthusiasm that they can gauge from how you respond to a question that isn't 
easy to respond to. So, so, so yeah, that, that's um, something you should keep in mind, at least in my experience of the interviews, is that they can get you jittered up and they can be unpleasant experiences. But if you prepare for them, it can mitigate this considerably. I think for a lot of people, it can be quite unnatural to be in the position of selling yourself, which I suppose is what you have to do in an interview. Um, apart from what you've already mentioned, are there any concrete tips that you'd give to any applicants about their interviews? I'd say there's a little extra one as well that I've come across a couple of people being asked is a recent paper that you that they'll ask you. Give me an example of a paper you've read recently and what you thought of it. Um, and this is another question as well. No one will prepare for. And despite them even having read a paper recently, perhaps even wrote a paper recently, they'll just completely fumble it. So, so again, have a paper in mind that you know well, that you can give weaknesses and strengths for, and that you can just reel off examples for. Just at least know the title of a paper and a rough pico, a four-sentence pico of it, and that'll be it. That, that's enough preparation for you to not completely fumble a station. And that's, that's one thing. And the other thing as well is with regards to medical stations, I think, again, just due to brevity of it, they almost always choose acute stations. Um, they always call, ask for things that are the classic um, emergency department presentations of a DKA or a sepsis or some difficult ethical conundrum, but nonetheless has a definitive answer for it that you have to choose, i.e. they don't want a DNAR, however, they won't benefit from CPR whatsoever. Are you going to resuscitate them or not when they have this DNIR written up for them, despite it being against their wishes. This type of thing, it's, it's a just, there is a definitive correct answer that they have for it, which means that they can have nice, easy tick boxes. So they choose those types of stations. So you can just revise those. And again, it's what, 20 pages in the Oxford Handbook of the acute stations. And that'll cover almost everything that they'll actually throw at you in that entire area how I'd go about it personally if I had to do it again and on that note I suppose it leads me on to my next question is there anything that you would have done differently uh, if you were to apply again <laughs> um, that's a good I would have revised hazard ratios because that came up and that threw me um, I would have I would have actively done picoing in a really strict fashion i would have literally said the words the population group they studied or the patient group they studied with a like a plosive p each time i say it just so they know that is the p for pico and it's just so obvious that they can't give you no marks for it even though from your memory you thought you picoed it but it wasn't obvious to them that's that's how it what I've done differently because it was again just low-hanging fruit I knew what a hazard ratio was I had done hazard ratios but I fumbled the answer and I didn't get the marks for it um, it's another analogy is that I would liken it to a driving test because everyone checks their side mirrors when they're turning right but none of us make 
make it obvious. You have to make it obvious that you're checking your mirror. That's how they know you've done it in the first place. You have to make it obvious that you're picoing right now. Otherwise, how do I know this is the structure you're using in the first place? Um, that type of picture. And I think um, something else I would have probably also done is prepped the actual full answers for leadership and education examples, because leadership and education is kind of harder to sell especially in comparison to research. I was just expecting just research questions. The AFP in my head was just an, a way of me doing more research in the future, and that's what I wanted from it. I didn't expect them to ask predominantly about education and leadership. However, to them, that's as important as research itself. So they'll ask about it. I didn't prep for an example of education at all, just zero. I had no example to give for it. Um, and I didn't really have a good example for leadership either. Um, so, so yeah, again, just having a good example that you can immediately bring to mind so that you're not spending time hesitating of which example am I going to choose is really beneficial. I think that's really helpful advice. Um, I guess my last question to you um, would be that if you were to choose one particular thing, one single most important thing that candidates need to demonstrate in order to have a successful AFP application, what would that be? Um, <laughs> oh, okay, I, that's difficult. Oddly, and I don't know if this is even correct, to be fair, enthusiasm. I would, if you had to choose anything, enthusiasm, because there's a whole breadth and range of ability, and that's known anyway. There'll be a whole breadth and range of people who have public publications, all of that stuff. But the focus on you having a publication or a good example of leadership, education, etc., you've probably already given in your white space questions or your CV, and they've already probably considered. In person, the interviews are done because they can see how you act. And the best thing, that you, the most important thing that you act to them is your enthusiasm. Well, you shouldn't really have to act it, but that you show in person to them is enthusiasm. So, yeah, sell that. Find genuine forms of enthusiasm because there's a reason you're applying. There's a reason that you want to do research. Know it or find it, learn it, regurgitate it. Um, so thank you, Ashley, for providing your invaluable tips and experience and for giving up your time to speak today. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel or like the MMJ on Facebook. Please leave comments or questions on topics you'd like to see us cover in future episodes. Stay safe and see you all next time.